Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an executive who moved from a big tech background at Amazon to Rome to work on the digital transformation of Italian bureaucracy. And I told all the people I recruited, you are coming into an incredibly frustrating, slow environment called bureaucracy. So don't ever complain about it. So once you get into this mindset, you just know that you're going to have way more obstacles and a much bigger headwind than working in the private world. That was Diego Piacentini. He came into the FT to talk to me about how he applied the lessons he'd learned as an executive at Amazon to help transform Italians' experiences of dealing with government. You have a fascinating perspective on technology, Diego, being both in the private and the public sectors. But I'd like to understand a bit more about your time at Apple and Amazon. How did that come about? How did an Italian end up working for Apple? It happened very early in the Apple stage of evolution in Europe. I was at that time a pretty young graduate working for this little Italian multinational corporation called Fiat. And I was just called by the very new Apple Italy to launch a financial services program. At that time, selling a Macintosh desktop publishing, I don't know if you remember this word, desktop publishing system was pretty expensive. And Apple wanted to facilitate the sales with leasing and consumer credit programs. And I was doing that kind of stuff at Fiat. So they recruited me. I was very, very young. I was, I think, 27, 28. And I started with Apple Italy there. Right. Very simple. And then you moved on to Amazon, which must have been a very different culture. What were you doing for Amazon? Well, I met Amazon when I was running Apple Europe at that time. So very late 1990s. And Jeff Bezos asked me if I was interested in running the newborn international business. At that time, Amazon had only very small operations in the UK and Germany. We're talking about the end of 1999. And I gladly accepted. It was very hard for me at that time to leave Apple and Steve Jobs because I had no intention to do it. Not at all. But uh, my meeting with Jeff, and um, I also remember that time John Doerr was a part of the board, and some of the Amazon executives made me really think this is a big deal. This company is serious. And what impression did uh, Jeff Bezos leave on you at that time? I mean, as you're saying, it was still a relatively small company at that stage, but with these vast ambitions. So what made you jump from this incredibly cool company, Apple, to Amazon? Yeah, I remember the conversation with Jeff. was He was very excited because finally Amazon was becoming a $1 billion revenue company at that time. And uh, I think that I was super impressed by, first of all, how genuine Jeff is. He's a very straightforward, high-principle person. And his long-term view and the focus on what he called the inputs of building a business and not the outputs, all of this made me think that e-commerce was going to be big. And that time was really, really, really small. It was the very beginning. And I thought, I should give it a try. I mean, this is, I would regret not trying this. And I ended up, I was being lucky because the you know Amazon turned what Amazon is today. But it was a very hard decision because, you know, leaving Apple at that time with Steve Jobs, and I still remember the iMac was becoming a very popular computer to a company where, that was losing a lot of money because Amazon was losing a lot of money. And uh, it was a hard decision. A lot of people told me you're stupid as a rock <laughs> making that decision. Yeah, uh, but you haven't regretted it. I have not regretted it one bit. Yeah. And when you say that you were in charge of international operations, what did that mean at that time? First of all, the only business that Amazon had in the UK was books, music, and videos. It was not even called uh, 
DVD. We still were selling VHS. We're starting selling DVD at that time. And so it was uh, expanding the category of products from a media-focused retailer to start selling electronics and toys and apparel and clothing. So expanding the categories of the products and entering into new countries. So expanding our European operations, entering into Japan, over time into China, India, all of those places. And how much of Amazon's proposition remains universally valid and how much has to be adapted to the local cultures and traditions and regulations and laws? That's an excellent question. In fact, the reason why I'm saying that, I still remember when Jeff asked me during the interview process, so what do you think is the difference between a French customer, an American customer, or a German or a British customer? And I said, fundamentally, none. They all want to have great prices and great service, I think. And that was the right answer, by the way. And Jeff started laughing really, really hard, like he does. In Europe, we did not have to adapt much to the local habits because Amazon value was so vastly better than the local habits in terms of customer service, in terms of you know customer returns policies, in terms of trusting customers and the technology that was being built, the simplicity of the website, that at the end of the day, it was really trying to say, we have to do it the Amazon way versus a German way or a French way, which was not really clear what it was. When we moved to Japan, then we started having some uh, different approaches. Japanese and the Asian customers in general were, at that time especially, more browsing than searching, also because search technology in double-by characters was less evolved than in uh, Roman characters. But also in that case, to remember, big conversation about we need to build a joint venture because you cannot do Japan by yourself. At least that's what the experts were telling us. And we were stubborn on saying, I don't think we're going to get much value from a local partner because we don't want to be a me too company. We want to be a company that's going to change the way of buying and selling products also in Japan. So we insisted on staying alone, and it turned out that was a good decision. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the extraordinary things that's always seemed to me about Amazon is that the vision was pretty much there from day one. And you go back and read Jeff Bezos's early letters, his founding letters about what he wanted to do. It's all spelled out very clearly. Mm -hmm. And the two things that always struck me, one is he absolutely wanted to preserve this day one mentality, that Amazon is a startup company. It has to innovate. It has to be fresh every day. It should never get to day two. And the second thing is that for what at uh, that time was a kind of retailing company, he had the dual ambition of providing the greatest array of goods for the cheapest price. Now, normally in retailing, you can have one or the other, but not both. So can you explain to me how Amazon manages to achieve that, both the array of products that it sells, the price that it achieves, and this amazing focus on innovation? It's interesting because, as you said, right, Amazon is uh, very stubborn on the vision I mean, Earth's largest selection was already very clear in Jeff's at that time. Even if you were just selling books, the, the objective was to become Earth's largest selection. Clearly, and now I remember all the pitches that we're making in the early 2000s to convince vendors to sell to these small e-commerce retailers' products. Still remember conversations with Japanese TV makers saying nobody will ever buy television sets online. <laughs> It's clearly the advantage of the internet, the advantage of having a smaller number of warehouses and infinite shelving. So that is obviously a concept. You need to transform this concept of immediate availability of products into an incredibly focused and efficient operation. In fact... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the things I've learned incredibly well is how to scale retail operations because that's the key part, right? And you know, obviously the internet is a great technology to allow people to access in a easy way to information. But at the end of the day, what Amazon is about is an incredibly efficient retailer that manages inventory mm-hmm. and delivery and customer satisfaction in a very precise manner. Is it still a retail company or is it a data company? Is it a logistics company? What do you think well, it is? Amazon it's... obviously, and I've not been with Amazon now for two years, so Amazon <laughs> has evolved a lot sure. in that direction, is many things. Overall, though, one thing that is in common in all Amazon businesses is that Amazon is a customer-focused company. It really starts from the customer, and that's also what I try to apply to my government job, starts from the citizen and work backward, learning from Amazon, start from the customers and work backward. What does that mean, though? Because every company says we're customer-centric, right? Have you ever heard someone say, no, I don't like customers? The point is that customer centricity starts from building the mechanisms that allow that to happen. The customer service system at Amazon was built inside. So it was built in such a way that for a customer service representative, was very easy to return a product by just clicking one button versus many customer services from many legacy companies that makes it incredibly hard and get customers to go through hurdles. But many times, it's not just the policies, also because the systems are hard. So Amazon built pretty much all the systems from inside. There were very few, if none, outside software packages bought. Everything was built, and everything was built around this concept of customer centricity. And the same approaches for his cloud business and his content business, the Kindle. Everything was built around that. One of the first features that Jeff wanted on the Kindle, that's pretty amazing. We never think about it, which is if you bought this book by mistake on your Kindle, click here to cancel the order. Can you imagine that? Nobody would think that way. Now, as you alluded to there, you moved into government. You had this very successful career at Amazon, and then Matteo Renzi came calling. How did that come about? Well, before I go into that, I want to just remind one conversation I had with Jeff when he had me come join Amazon. I said, hey, Jeff, I'm usually a person to stick around a lot, but at some point, I think I will want to do something for my country, for Italy. And I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know I will want to do something. And when I had this meeting with Matteo Renzi and I told Jeff about it, he'd still remember that conversation we had 15 years earlier, which I, I thought it was impressive. <laughs> and Jeff was obviously, first of all, we talked about succession plan. He said, how long does it take to find a successor and everything? And then he was very proud of my decision. The Matteo Renzi conversation was very simple. He visited the Silicon Valley because he wanted to get to know what was going on in the Silicon Valley, and he wanted to know Italians that had left Italy to work there. And so yeah, I to remember the Italian consul calling me in Seattle. I flew down, and I had breakfast with Matteo. In a hotel, he said, would you like to help me to run the digital transformation of the government? And I said, Heck, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> that was my first reaction. And then... Three or four months later, he came back. In the meanwhile, I know if, it sounds like prehistory in politics, but at that time, Matteo had 42% of votes at the European election, and we're talking about less than three years ago. <laughs> the world has changed. He was the future once. And I thought this could be the guy who really can make things happen. 
And I discussed with my wife, I discussed with Jeff, and I decided, listen, I know this is going to be really hard. I know that the chances of failure are really hard, but I'd rather two years from now regret that I failed versus regret that I didn't even try. And Jeff helped me with that, the non-regret approach. Mm-hmm. Is this something that two years or three years from now, you're sorry you didn't try or you're sorry that you tried and failed? And it was a very helpful methodology of decision, the non-regret approach. And I decided to try it, and here I did it. Now, I'm fascinated by the culture shock you must have experienced going from this incredibly fast-moving, customer-centric organization with a global mindset that capital was not really an issue, going into the Italian government, where governments in Europe are not particularly renowned for being citizen-focused, where budget pressures were enormous, where there was real constraint on your action because there's so many other players in the political process. So how did you even begin when you focus on digital transformation for the public sector? First of all, when you go work for the government, you know what you're going to get. And I told the people that I ended up recruiting because one of the reasons I accepted to do this, one of the conditions, the condition is, yes, but I want to hire my team. In fact, the reason why my title is commissioner is because commissioners can hire from outside. That's for the Italian law situation. So, and I told all the people I recruited, you are coming into an incredibly frustrating, slow environment called bureaucracy. So don't ever complain about it. So once you get into this mindset, you just know that you're going to have way more obstacles and a much bigger headwind than working in the private world. And that's very helpful, believe me. So you look at situations that sound nonsense I built a lot of patience. I'm a much more patience person than when I started. And you look at them as defects and you keep with perseverance to bring along the programs. And in fact, we were able to achieve a few successful results in terms of projects. Who set the priorities? Was it Prime Minister Renzi saying, I want you to achieve this, that and the other? Or were you and your team very much saying, this is where we think we can make the difference? It's a mix. Matteo Renzi had the vision of simplification of the public administration in Italy. And believe me, that's a, that's a big vision because that's one of the hardest jobs ever possible to get. And uh, you need to look at digital transformation as a forcing function. It's not just about technology, although technology is a necessary condition. And uh, you start looking at this huge problem and you try to break it in a lot of segments and sub-segments and you decide to start approaching a few. In my specific situations, I had four big projects that were not going anywhere, which is the typical of governments, especially Italian governments in this situation, which projects were approved by law like two or three years earlier, but pretty much they had no traction. And those projects were about digital payments, building a national register of citizens' data that in Italy are spread all around the municipalities that are not synchronous the electronic identity card, and the digital identity. So those are what we call enabling platforms. And how did you get on on those four priorities? Well, my point was, let's not try to throw everything away. There must be something good. And we identified those four big projects. They had people and resources. There were companies working on it. The main reason is why they're not going anywhere, because there was no leadership. There were no project management skills. There were no tools. There were no documentation. So we pretty much worked on adding, I would say, basic project management and leadership 
tools to those four projects. And today, actually, we saw a phenomenal traction. The National Register of Projects in Italy that had only one city on that database when I joined back in 2016. And just to be clear, all cities, should, all municipalities should have migrated to this new technology by the end of 2014. Now we have municipalities that represent almost 13 million people. 10 or 15 every day are joining the migration and getting into this new technology. The same thing with electronic identity card. Within three or four years, all Italians will have a piece of software called electronic identity card in their hands. Digital payment platform. Think about the concept of payment as a service for which all administrations use the same payment platform. They have automatic reconciliations of financial flow with accounting flow. They don't have to negotiate a credit card deal with each credit card holder. So that's already, I think it's, we're at 6 or 7% of payment transactions. Again, from zero. Think about that. Obviously, it's a long, long road to get to 100, but step by step. So those are the enabling platforms. Those are the projects that are already existing, easy to identify. Let's make it work. Then there was a second set of projects. That was our own initiatives, which is open source software allowing the sharing of technology among administrations. And we created two that are very used now websites. It's called designers.italia.it and developers.italia.it. Most of the public administration software and design tools and widgets are now on those two websites. And the third one is an app. It's called io.italia.it. It's both in Italian and English. This app will allow, over time, citizens to manage their relationship with administrations, either for payments or for messaging or for archiving documentations on an app. Again, starting from the citizen needs, moving backward, not starting from the law and the rules and moving forward. So those are the three set of projects we'll be working on. But I think the most successful for me has been the continuity. My commitment was two years. I stepped down after two years, which is very unusual in politics to step down. But I was able to actually have the prime minister appoint my replacement. A different prime minister. A different prime minister, because, by the way, we did it very fast. But in the meanwhile, I lost Renzi, who <laughs> lost the referendum and resigned three months after I joined. Then I had a great relation with Paolo Gentiloni, but he was the prime minister at the end of a term. And here comes the new government that sees me as the appointee of the previous governments. And probably their major desire was to kick me out as soon as possible. But with a lot of perseverance, I was able to explain to them that digital transformation, which I've said from the very beginning, has no political label. Every government wants it. And they pretty much were able to get to the point that what we're doing were very useful for them, too. And they appointed a successor that actually I indicated. And now the work keeps going on because there is nothing like digital transformation that one government knows that another government will see the benefit. Now, you and your team were known as the missionaries, I believe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there were some journalists that gave us that. <laughs> Did you actually succeed in converting the government to your um, religion? I was able to support very successfully those parts of the government that already wanted to do it, but they didn't have any support. Try to convince those that didn't see any reason for digital transformation, it's an incredibly hard job. And uh, we didn't do that part because there is enough goodwill people in the government that says, I do believe in digital transformation. I want to do it. You guys help me. And that critical mass of people was keeping us very, very busy. So our mission came on that way. But the mission is also in the fact that if you want to work for the government, you don't do that for the money. 
you do it because you want to really help the country. And in fact, the biggest issue I found, and that's, by the way, not just for the Italian government. I worked a lot with the UK government, the government digital service. We had the same problems. The major issue is the lack of skills, the lack of competence, the lack of human talent. And uh, over time, governments will need to find ways to attract talent. Is that a question of money? Uh, no, I don't think so. Obviously, you need to offer a decent salary, but you don't need to compete with the private world. First of all, you can't, and it's a waste of time. It's more like building programs that would allow people like me to join government for a period of time. Let me explain a little better. In my opinion, there are two cycles of a life stage of a person. As soon as they graduate and at the end of their career, I belong to the latter. But a lot of the people that joined my team were either just graduated or been working for startups for a short period of time, and they really wanted to help the government. Now, if you create processes and mechanisms, you can attract those people, say, work two or three years on this specific program. If you ask those people, do you want to work for the government for all your life? The answer is probably no. But if you give a beginning and an end, and you really look at that as a mission, obviously it needs to be within well-described processes, there is a chance to do it. In what ways do you think you improved the everyday life of Italians through what you achieved? Well, I think that the most immediately impactful is payments. If you think about it, most of our activities with governments is paying governments and receiving money if you are in the pension, um, welfare. Payments is huge. At least the government situation that I saw is not only you have to pay, which on its own is already you know a negative activity, but you have to waste time in paying. So making that easier... It's something that you start seeing the benefits. We cooperated with many municipalities. The city of Milan is one of them. Introducing their payment system, for example, we did introduce it with the collection of their garbage tax. They had an increase of 40% year over year. I myself paid with PayPal in a few seconds versus going to the post office and getting some uh, money order and all those obsolete payment systems. At the same time, the city of Milan had this benefit of automatic reconciliation. So that, I would say, is the most extraordinary, visible approach. Although, as I said before, it's only 6% of the transaction. And hopefully it's going to be 15 next year and 30% a year after. The other ones will have to come. I mean, the National Register, once all the municipalities are on and all the databases of all the departments are connected, people will save hundreds of hours a year for not filling forms because all the data, the government has it. If we look a bit bigger picture at GovTech, as I think people call it now, what do you think still needs to be done in order to make our governments as citizen-centric as Amazon is customer-centric? Well, I think that, first of all, this new wave of GovTech companies, either they're startups or scale-up companies, it's fundamental for bringing governments to a digitalized world. Does that mean governments can't do it by themselves? Governments have a hard time to do it by themselves, but above all, the current procurement system with the private world is built to avoid bribery, to reach a level of fairness. But the result it achieves is that there is pretty much a handful of companies that supply technology but do not innovate. GovTech and the many companies that are building new innovative systems within GovTech transforms supplying tech into innovation. Obviously, there need to be people on the government side that can receive that. We need to build the famous skills that I mentioned before. And the other point is that GovTech, and by saying GovTech, I mean that 
many, many companies that are now investing into building software technology for governments is immensely benefiting from cloud computing, cloud services, and machine learning. Those two services will make GovTech very, very useful. So paint us a picture. If we give free reign to GovTech across Europe, what is it going to achieve? How are people's lives going to be different in five or ten years' time? I think that the best way to look at it is having a relationship with governments in as simple way as having a relationship with all your daily internet activities using media products or buying products. I mean, we need to think that way. That's why we thought about the app, io.italia.it, which, by the way, if you can take a look at it, you'll see the mock-ups, how it reproduces the simplicity that I just mentioned. So it is pretty much saying, hey, relationship with government is no longer a pain, but it becomes an easy part of your life. So it's government as a service, as the Singaporeans would say. Yes, we definitely did not invent <laughs> this concept, but governments are here to make the life of us, citizens and corporations, easy. And today, in most countries, definitely my country, is not the case. All right, Diego. Now we ask our guests three questions. What is the most overrated or underrated technology, in your opinion? So... In the overrated, coming from two years of government and hearing politicians using buzzwords, I get goosebumps when I hear the word blockchain and bounce of politicians. Definitely it's overused. And the applications of blockchains into government activities is still far from being ready to scale. And it's a very abstract concept. So I would say that is a big overrate. In terms of overrating, I still think that 3D video, virtual reality, I think they're still a bit overrated. Definitely, they're not delivering what they've been promising. Okay. What is the biggest challenge you think facing the tech sector overall? I think now is to deliver consistently all the benefits that machine learning is bringing. Machine learning is definitely changing the way the technology is being used and the benefit of technology. And there are issues with the lack of people that know enough about machine learning, companies that can use it. How can you scale the benefit of machine learning? That, to me, is not the only, but it's one of the big issues. And I see that also within the government activities. At Amazon, I remember we started investing in machine learning way before people were even knowing that word, machine learning. And in fact, you see the results, right? Because it's a long-term investment, and so you have to attract the right talent. And I think that scaling machine learning in such a way that the whole world would benefit is going to be a big deal. At the same time, we say one of the biggest issues is going to be also, and I'm still thinking about my government job, my government hat, is about the ethics of artificial intelligence, potential regulation of those platforms. We are today in such a confusion state by governments, that doing the wrong thing could be very harmful to the evolution of machine learning. And finally, what non-tech book would you recommend to our listeners to understand what is going on in the modern world? To understand the modern world. Funny enough, I go back in suggesting a book that we did read at Amazon. We used to have a book club, reading a book and commenting among executives. And one of the books that really helped me think through was The Black Swan. It's not a new book. <laughs> Although Taleb's new book is The Skin of the Game, it has some of the concept there. I found it incredibly useful to help executives avoid the cliches of uh, misunderstanding numbers, misunderstanding conventional wisdom. I thought that was an incredibly good book. For startups that want to scale, there is another classic book that's called The Goal 
which is about the theory of constraints and continuous improvements that we would highly recommend, although it's the book that gets updated constantly, but originally I think it's a 20 years old book. It's an evergreen. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Diego. Thank you. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute to our informal survey. If you'd like to take part in the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.